0: Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 335th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. The Urban Farm Podcast is sponsored by HealthIQ.com. As I get older, I am finding that leaving a legacy is becoming more important, and a big part of that is making sure my loved ones are financially sound when I depart. One way to do that is through life insurance. Health IQ is a life insurance agency that helps runners, cyclists, yogis, vegetarians, urban farmers, and other health-conscious people get lower rates on their life insurance. Visit healthiq.com forward slash urban farm to support our show and see if you qualify. Today on our podcast, we have someone who supports all his local farmers. We're talking with Bill Bazook about urban farming in Eugene, Oregon. Bill opened his store, the Eugene Backyard Farmer, in April 2010. There were already several traditional feed stores in his area, yet he felt they did not understand the unique needs of the urban farmer. With that in mind, Bill created what he calls a Boutique Urban Farming Supply Store and has seen significant growth since opening. The Eugene Backyard Farmer helps people convert their backyard into a more sustainable and thriving place with supplies for small-scale flocks, plus gardening and pollination items, as well as chicks, custom feeds, garden plants, soil amendments, and beehives. Through his store, Bill shares knowledge and experience, and hopes to continue to be the center of the urban farming community in Eugene. Welcome to the show today, Bill. Are you ready to rock?
1: I sure am, Greg
0: sweet. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today?
1: I sure can, Greg. While my store has been open for eight years before opening the store, I worked in various retail environments around the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last one being a major book chain store here in Eugene, Oregon. I realized after about 25 years of working in retail, corporate retail specifically, mm-hmm. it just wasn't for me. and I felt like I need to go out and, and, and set my own path. Right it was around uh, the holiday seasons when I'm working in the bookstore and it happened like three or four customers in a row coming up to me looking for books on chickens. Oh, I mean, nice. What going on with? There's, there's gotta be a trend in, in, going on here. So um, I researched and I looked into the, what was at that point a trend or a fad in, in backyard chicken keeping. And I realized that this is a potential business move. It also so happens that urban farming in general has been sort of a life passion of mine, starting as a very young child in gardening. So uh-huh. I've always been an avid gardener, but to see that gardeners were taking this whole step of growing your own food in the next step, mm-hmm. I found extremely exciting
0: wow how cool is that so i actually want to come up and see what you're up to this sounds like an epic project you've got but if i'm you know i walk in the front door of your place actually let's step back i drive up to the space what am i seeing
1: i'll even Take you back to about nine years ago when I looked at this space. Uh huh. This was a, my store was a former auto repair company. It had four bays, jacked lifts, and had been abandoned for about three years. As a result, the transient population was hopping over the fence and was turning this into a de facto camp for for sleepovers. Uh-huh. So it was, it was pretty scary. And I contacted the landlord. He really at that point only wanted to sell the business, but then he was getting a lot of heat from the city regarding the huge mess that was involved in this place. So he happily rented this place. So he brought in a bunch of 30 yard dumpsters, filled it up with about three or four loads of garbage, mm-hmm. cleared the area out. And then we turned this into an urban farming supply store. And when I say urban, I mean urban. I'm in the northwest corner of downtown Eugene, but we're on the fringes of downtown, practically under the Washington. Jefferson I 105 bridge. So it truly is an, an urban environment.
0: Wow. All right, cool. So I drive up. What do I see?
1: The first thing you're going to see is our chicken coop. At the Eugene Backyard Farmer, we don't want to just sell chicken supplies, Uh gardening supplies, composting supplies, and bee supplies. We want to display them as well. So when you park in our parking lot, the first thing you're going to look at is a fenced-in area where I keep, at this point, my chickens and my ducks. And that's a rotating cast of characters. You know, chickens and ducks come and go, depending on my whims and desires. Mm Mm-hmm. And we do this so that when people ask me, can you raise chickens in the city, I point over the fence and say, well, there's five (laughs) chickens. Are you doing just fine? Or can chickens and ducks cohabitate? And we look over the fence and say, well, there you go. Wow! And then, of course, as you're walking toward my store, you're seeing how we had taken out all the laurels and standard landscaping and converted everything to raised beds. So I have raised beds featuring different garden aspects. So obviously during the summer, I'm focusing on my tomatoes and peppers and things like that. Right. And we also try to garden year round, again, to inspire people to really take advantage of every square inch of property that they have.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right.
1: Then, of course, when you come into the store, the first thing you're probably going to be met with is our shop cats, Sonia and Sophie. Shop cats came from a friend of ours. They were barn rescue cats. Mm-hmm. And I know that if you're running a feed store, you're going to have mice and rodents. So oh, I felt yes. very important to bring some shop cats in. It was a difficult decision to make. As much as I love cats, I know this is also a business. And I know that there were probably people out there that would be allergic to cats and as a result might not visit my store. But I got really lucky with shop cats. and They're incredibly generous. They go out and greet everybody say hello escort people into the store and then they lounge around the store all day in various hiding spots and honestly people come in almost on a daily basis just to find the shop cats
2: oh
0: nice if you have chickens there's a good chance you're gonna have some vermin as well so you might want to you know if you have an urban area that you're growing chickens and ducks at it's you know it's a good idea to have a feral outback or two i know we do here at the urban farm
1: Exactly. And of course, uh, you know, they've been fixed and they have their ears clipped, but they're really good. We have about a 25,000 square foot property and they've never left the property. So they're pretty much homebound. They go outside whenever they want and right. they come inside and sleep whenever they want. I definitely have mice and they do a great job of keeping the mice. Mm-hmm. They only like to eat the, the mouse heads, and so oh. I, of course, take the rest of the mouse and toss it over into the chicken yard. Oh, yes. And some people are aghast to hear this, but chickens are indeed omnivores. Yes, they are. like little dinosaurs out there eating their mice.
0: Yeah. I've actually seen a chicken take out a mouse before.
1: I've actually had to pull a mouse out of a chicken because I thought she was going to choke on it. She was trying to swallow it whole.
0: Oh, oh my gosh. Well, there you go. <laughs> there you go cool so what are the kinds of things that you sell you know you've mentioned a few of them but what are the kinds of things that you sell
1: first of all we sell uh, chicken food we our biggest seller is a custom produced made exclusively for the Eugene backyard farmer in a mill just north of us in Brownsville Oregon started out as a slow seller and it's become the, the city favorite and we sell at least two tons of it a week wow so we sell primarily chicken feed uh-huh again we're in urban farming supply store is trying to focus on the city aspect of things and if you go to a traditional f- uh, feed store it's you know you're it, buying 40 and 50 pounds of chicken feed at a time is not a problem but for a lot of people they just have two or three chickens in which case buying a 40 or 50 pound bag of feed Uh, It's not a good move. It's just going to sit around in the garage. It's going to get stale. Right. move might move into it. So we sell a lot of our feeds as well as scratches and amendments by the pound. So you're not stuck with a 50-pound bag of oyster shell.
0: Oh, wow. That's an excellent idea. So, So you've actually really catered. You're catering to the small backyard farmer. I like the thought process behind that.
1: Exactly. Well, I mean, first of all, we wanted to get a feel for what the average flock size was, so we did an informal survey a number of years ago, mm-hmm. and we just started asking people, "How many chickens do you have?" And we kept on asking that question until somebody finally said, "You already asked me that." We oh. told me that we've already cycled through our standard customer cycle, and we found that the average flock size in the Eugene area is five point two chickens. Wow. As few as one chicken and as many as twenty six chickens. So mm-hmm. there was a nice range, but we felt that five point two was the baseline, so we wanted to build our business around that baseline.
0: Oh, nice! So, are you offering education as well? Do you teach people how to do this?
1: Absolutely, Greg. We started out doing chicken classes and they were always full to get the word out we offered them through groupon or living social or something like that mm-hmm. and we'd do classes every other week usually uh, Sunday evenings after the store closes just a two-hour hands-on class mm-hmm. and we would run them from mid-january through about mid-may or so and we're generally having 12 to 15 people in the class at any given time although it's interesting even though we're happy to do the classes I think the demand no longer exists for teaching people how to raise chickens because it's so prevalent throughout the Eugene area. In other words, you can get the information for us or if you just moved into town and you do want to become a, a chicken farmer, mm-hmm. you can ask your neighbor or your other neighbor or your third neighbor or your boss or your co-worker or a fellow student. The knowledge has become so prevalent that we've kind of made ourselves obsolete in that area.
0: Well, that's epic. I love that.
1: That is good. Although there's still a desire for knowledge. So we're always happy to walk people through the process of raising chickens. And then now we're focusing more on treatment-free, hands-off beekeeping as our major education.
2: All right. Wow.
0: How cool is that? Yeah. I know when I started offering chicken classes here in Phoenix, it was like 2001 and 2002. And I would have two or three people show up for classes and, you know, fast forward a decade. And we, I remember one class that we gave, it was at a local bookstore and we had 180 people show up. There was enough room for them. And this was probably...
2: impressive. Yeah,
0: this was like 2009, 2010. And now there are dozens of organizations and people here in the Phoenix metropolitan area that give chicken classes. So, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, the more the better.
1: I agree. And, you know, while I am a store and therefore my job is to be a successful business... Mm Mm-hmm. Education of our customers is a critical aspect of what we do. So sometimes we get really busy and we can't answer everybody's question on the spot, but we always make sure to carve out all that extra time so that we're really interested in getting people all the information they need because yeah. we want to make sure that when they have that first chicken raising experience, it's a positive experience for them because we want them to come back next year and say, wow, I love those basic breeds you sold me. I want to try some more rare and heirloom breeds mm-hmm. or maybe they're telling their neighbors and friends about how awesome it is raised chickens. And those neighbors are saying, oh, great. Where did you learn about this? And they'll say, hopefully, oh, you should go see this guy down at this one store under the bridge.
0: Yeah. Wow. So it sounds to me like there's lots of people urban farming and keeping backyard chickens in Eugene, Oregon.
1: I tried to do the math once, and it's difficult for me to determine what my market share is, but I do know how many chicks I sell per year, and since I know what the average flock size is, and if I assume that maybe I'm at a 30% market share between... Uh Myself, the larger regional chains, as well as the traditional mom-and-pop feed stores. I'm suggesting that there's between three and five thousand households that keep chickens in the Eugene-Springfield area.
0: Wow! And what's the population there?
1: Eugene is about 197,000, and another 40,000 in Springfield. So we're not a large town.
0: Wow! No kidding, no kidding. And so, is there such thing as an average customer?
1: To a certain degree, there is. You know, Eugene is not necessarily the most diverse place in the world, but it does seem like we do have a diverse customer base. You know, so in other words, we do have young, idealistic individuals coming into the store. We have you know, preppers, people who have some property out in the country. We have lots of professionals, university professors coming into the store. We have a couple of millionaires coming into the store. Mm-hmm. But I think our average customer is usually a younger family, usually a husband wife who has a couple of children. They own their own home, reasonably educated. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess your typical suburban family would be our, our typical uh, customer. Yeah. It's not unusual to go out into our parking lot and see beat up 72 Ford F-150 next to a Mercedes-Benz.
2: <laughs> wow.
1: There definitely is that diversity there in terms of who does this.
0: Gotta love it, man. That is so sweet. So I'm going to throw a curveball at you. I want you to think over the past eight years, and there has to be at least one of those customers that came in and they shared a story with you or you, you came to understand their story and it just moved you and you said to yourself, man, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Have you got one of those for me?
1: I think the best thing about this job is seeing a young couple coming into the store and maybe the woman is pregnant and then they mm. come back. Nine months later, and there's a, a infant in their arms, and then they're coming in another year, and they're getting baby chicks. Mm-hmm. And I remember this one customer family, they had their first child, and he was American, she was a Parisian,
2: mm-hmm. and they
1: so they're bilingual, but they're also teaching their children or their child how to speak a sign language.
2: Wow. And her
1: very first sentence in sign language is, I feed the chickens. Oh, and it was adorable to come in and she was fine to me how she fed the chickens
0: what at the age of 5 or 6
1: exactly exactly so wow. you know watching the the development of the of the of families and how they're still embracing urban farming it's pretty inspiring
0: yeah wow that's epic that is cool so as you kind of look over the the landscape of Eugene and the future, you know, moving into the next five or 10 years, what do you see?
1: We have mentioned how prevalent urban farming is in Eugene, and actually, we're starting to get our first amount of pushback from some of the community. Mm. For some reason, the rat population has taken a spike over the last few months, Mm -hmm. specifically in one part of town where the urban farming is concentrated. A lot of people keep chickens. And as a result, a lot of people are pointing to both chickens and open compost containers as the source of our spike in rat populations. So we're definitely working on the PR side of things there to oh, yeah. explain it. To- while it could be that the chickens are contributing to a rodent issue, it's probably a combination of a number of factors, including an aged sewer system, changes in climates, increase in development, a number of things. Yeah. But then again, we go back to how important it is for our store to provide education. Right. So we're using this as an opportunity to teach people not just how to urban farm and keep chickens, but how to do so responsibly. So we're encouraging our chicken keepers that when they go out to the coop every night to close up the coop which mm-hmm. they're doing anyway right right just take the food and put it into a sealed galvanized container so that the rodents don't, don't pick it up at night right again was very common for us to toss all of our garden scraps and our kitchen scraps out into the chicken run but what they don't eat at the end of the day needs to be collected and needs to be put into a compost bin and the compost bin needs to be turned because we need to remove both the habitat for the rodents yep. as well as the food for the rodents so yeah. i think that's one of the biggest challenges
0: so I want to just kind of throw this out there. Interesting you should say that at this particular moment, because over the past few months for us here in the Phoenix area, the rat population has exploded as well. And I'm, you know, I'm kind of sit, sitting back and watching. I did recently talk with the Urban urban Wildlife Person from the Arizona Game and Fish Department, and he said that a lot of the urban wildlife is growing more rapidly because of the way it's being managed,
1: interestingly
0: enough. So...
1: Yeah, and it- in addition to, you know, obviously there's always been rats and opossums and raccoons mm-hmm. in Eugene, but there's also a very vibrant wild turkey population. Oh, my and gosh. they're just all over the place. Quite literally, in the heart of downtown, you have turkeys just strolling up and down the <gasps> sidewalks.
0: So, oh, my gosh.
1: Yeah. Uh, I think to suggest that what is happening in your area, in Arizona, Mm -hmm. is happening in Oregon as well.
0: Yeah. And I I think that's less of a function of the, hey, we have chickens, and more of a function of, you know, the environment's changing for these animals. Because just in the past year, we're, we're three, four miles north of downtown in a densely urban area. We've had raccoons, bobcats, coyotes, and foxes just in the past six months in my neighborhood. So... You know, I think it's a sign of the times.
1: Yes, it's interesting. Yeah, and obviously, you know, we in town we look at the turkeys, and they're for the most part delightful. Uh huh. But we have a different reaction toward rats, and yep. I think that's that's understandable.
0: Yeah. So I hear you opened a chicken hotel. Tell us about it.
1: Yeah, the chicken hotel. It's called The Nesting Place, a luxury hotel for chickens. And the thing about urban farmers is they oftentimes do things like take a vacation. Yeah. And of course, the best thing to do when you go on vacation is have a neighbor kid come over and watch your chickens. Mm -hmm. It's great for the chickens, it's great for the neighbor kid. Everybody's happy, but it doesn't always work like that. So we built three private chicken suites here at the store. (laughs) Wow. You bring your chickens in, we have immaculate living conditions for them. They each get a private run. We feed them feed and water and we lock them up at night. We collect the eggs and we make sure the eggs are lo- donated to a local nonprofit. And it's not cheap by any means because again, in terms of biosecurity, it's much better if a neighbor kid watches your
2: chickens right, for at you. Home. Yeah. But
1: if you cannot get that coverage, we're here to help. The great thing about it is when our local media got wind of it, they decided to do an article. So <laughs> oh, one, of our nice. came, one of our customers came in to drop off her chickens and it was filmed on TV. And this customer, she's a younger woman, very beautiful woman. She looks like a Hollywood movie star. And she brought her four pet chickens in a cute little pink pet carrier. And she dropped her chickens off at our hotel and the TV station did a great article. That article was picked up and went nationally. And later that evening, I was featured on both MSNBC and Fox Business websites for my chicken hotel. So I got some real nice viral exposure from that.
0: No kidding. Congratulations on that.
1: It's fun. It's, it's, you know, we generally charge $2 per chicken per night for the standard service. It includes fresh food, fresh water, picking up, and an immaculate cleaning when they're done. Mm -hmm. Then we also offer uh, the luxury service, which includes turndown service, which usually is a handful of mealworms before they go to bed. So it's it's a pretty fun deal for them.
0: Well, and you you mentioned that it wasn't cheap, but... As far as I can tell, $2 a night per chicken, that's pretty cheap.
1: But when you have a family who's bringing their four chickens and they're going to France for four months, that Ah. adds up pretty fast.
2: Well,
0: (laughs) there there you go. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that. Thank you. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it.
1: First of all, as a business person, I kind of pride myself on failing in some aspect every day. (laughs) That's (laughs) how we we learn, right? Running a business means making mistakes. But in terms of the overall urban farming aspect of things, I think my biggest failure was trying to gain critical knowledge through the internet and specifically YouTube. Mm. And I know that some of your listeners may be offended by this, but I also know that many urban farmers, myself included, often take the next step of raising chickens for egg production. Mm-hmm. And I took that to raising chickens for meat production, and I wanted to learn how to properly butcher a chicken, so I learned it from YouTube. Mm-hmm. And, and then I went out with my, my internet knowledge, and I felt that it just was not done in a manner that was, I guess, quote unquote, respectful yeah. to the animal. It was not as efficient, it was not as clean as it should have been, and I felt really bad about it yeah. because I feel that if I'm going to eat meat, I want to know the whole process process and I just did it in a way that was not it did not feel right yeah a couple months later, Oregon State University was offering a butchering class at a local farm. Wow. This local farm actually had a large MPU, a mobile processing unit. It was a 53 foot trailer that was converted to a butchering center. And myself, along with about 12 or so other people, we went out there, we talked about the process, we watched the process, and then we did the process. Mm-hmm. And then we did the process some more. And so once I had that knowledge, I started doing the processing of chickens on a more regular basis. And then once I felt like I really had that knowledge, I then offer, offered those classes at my store. I was very wow. sensitive to offer the classes before my store opened, uh-huh. and I wanted to limit access because, again, it can be a sensitive subject for oh, yes, many absolutely. people. absolutely. I probably taught three or four classes, and each time we had at least a dozen people. My goal is that they wouldn't make the mistake that I made in the first place. So if you're going to learn how to process your own mm-hmm. chicken, these are the steps you need to take to do it properly.
0: Yeah, there is a lot of education data on YouTube and other places, but we have to make sure that it is good, proper, and really in integrity with who we are. It sounds to me like that wasn't the case for you.
1: Exactly. Maybe I just didn't scroll down far enough on YouTube to find the one tutorial that would have worked for me. Yeah. But again, if you're talking about something like that, you kind of need to touch, you need to feel, and you need to you to do it
2: right. Yeah,
0: exactly. Well, about eight years ago, I wasn't a vegetarian then. I mostly am a vegetarian now, most always, let me put it that way. And so I decided I was going to actually raise some chickens in the backyard, some meat birds, and I went through that process. And that is actually what sent me down the road of being much more vegetarian because I know I now know the process that it takes to you know go from a chick to plate. What was that like for you?
1: It was humbling. Was I mean? I still think about that first chicken that I butchered mm-hmm. and how I prolonged its
2: mm-hmm. death. And mm-hmm.
1: it's embarrassing and it's humiliating. And you know, I I, I throw my thoughts out into the universe. I'm. I'm my apologies. It
2: was yeah. just wrong.
1: And as a result, my chicken consumption has dropped dramatically, right. as has my pork and my beef consumption. And I see myself moving in the direction where I don't eat pork and beef anymore because of that same reason. I'm not sure if I have have it in me to process an animal like that. Yeah. I don't think it's the same as saying, well, I'll just buy my locally produced grass-fed beef and, and call it a hamburger. I see myself kind of going in the direction that it sounds like you've already gone, Greg.
0: Yeah. Well, and we have to remember, this is for you and for all of our listeners, we do the best that we can with the data that we have at the time, and then we have to just forgive ourselves and move on.
1: I agree.
0: Yeah. So what do you consider your biggest success?
1: When I first opened the Eugene Backyard Farmer, the city of Eugene had some pretty strict regulations in terms of what kind of urban farming can do.
2: Mm -hmm. Specifically,
1: you could only have up to two chickens in your backyard, and there was also a real estate requirement. So I gathered stakeholders and members of the community together. We presented our concerns to the city council, and the people speaking at city council ranged from the young, cute children bringing their Polish chickens in, for an example, Uh to a prominent University of Oregon law professor to... uh members of the business community, all presenting the facts of this is what's happening with urban farming in the city, uh-huh. and the regulations do not reflect reality. So as a result, on the spot, the Eugene City Council chose to suspend enforcement of the regulations of chicken keeping while they drafted new regulations. It took them about a year of uh-huh. writing new regulations. They did their due diligence, spoke with all stakeholders involved, myself included,
2: uh-huh. spoke
1: with different cities and municipalities around the country. And after about a year, they craft a new set of regulations that are most generous in supporting of urban farming. So at this point in the city of Eugene, you could keep up to six poultry over six months and then up to six poultry under six months old. So it allows you to either raise meat birds or recycle right. out and, and switch your flocks. You can have up to two miniature goats. You can have up to two beehives with uh, very small easements. Uh-huh. And you can also have a miniature pig, if you wish.
2: Wow.
0: So I I have to tell you, my listeners know this. I'm always looking for Epic. And first of all, you've said several things already that have been truly Epic. This is amazing. I have two degrees from Arizona state university, one in 2004 and one in 2006 in urban planning. And I know that that's a hard process to go through. So that congratulations, that is amazing that you actually got that changed.
1: Yeah, I was, I was, most pleased, and I think the city council was pleased as well, because they can't afford to hire a chicken cop. You know, they can't go around and knocking on and and doing a chicken census in every backyard. So in addition to have some very supportive urban farming regulations, they're facing reality. And also Eugene is very sensitive to food security. And, you know, we sit on a very very severe earthquake fault line, and should that big one happen, which most people think is going to happen any second now,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: how are we going to feed ourselves? And, you know, we're fortunate that we live in a very fertile valley, and there's lots of ma and pa farms throughout the area. But the fact that we can also feed our own selves in our own backyard provides a great deal in terms of food security for the community.
2: Yeah.
0: So what drives you?
1: Oh, food drives me. Food motivates me. I love food. I like growing food. I like Cooking food, preserving food, mm-hmm. eating food, sharing food. That's one reason why I got into distance running about eight years ago is I liked food so much. Ah. <laughs> and I'm very concerned about how food is produced worldwide in general, but in this country in specific. Yeah. The amount of waste that's happening is appalling. There really should be no reason why we have hunger in the world. We're growing enough food to feed the world. But in terms of distribution and logistics, our system is extremely broken. So my passion, my motivation, my desire is not just food, but smart food, how to grow it smartly, how to distribute it, how to make sure that we're taking advantage of our resources in a respectful manner. Mm
0: -hmm. Wow. Well said. Well said. Thank you. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why?
1: Well, coming from the book industry, I'm an avid reader, so oh, I can yes. list off a list of 100 favorite books, and none of them would have anything to do with urban farming. But if we were to stay on the subject of urban farming, I think my favorite is Your Farm in the City. It's a title by Lisa Taylor. It's a good book because it doesn't overwhelm urban farmers with a lot of information. Mm -hmm. And also toward the back of the book, it takes a typical suburban landscape with different I guess plots of land where the sun would be different.
2: Mm-hmm. And then it
1: breaks out what this property would look like in year one, year two, year three, year four, and year oh,
0: five. Oh, nice.
1: Look at your house and say, hey, my house looks a lot like this. And this is what I can do from year to year to year to year. So yeah. I, I think, you know, urban farming can be very intimidating. And this book does a jo- good job of taking away the mystique behind it.
0: Perfect. So. How about a non-urban farming book, given your background?
1: So again, if I were to think about my favorite books, there's a list of 20. I think my most recent favorite book would be The Good Rain by Timothy Egan. Mm-hmm. Timothy Egan was Northwest correspondent to the New York Times.
2: Oh, wow. And he wrote
1: a wonderful essay in this book about Fred Becky, who is a legendary mountain climber Ooh. who had died who had died recently. Mm -hmm. So I've been thinking a lot about that book and Fred Dickey for the last couple of weeks. And what my favorite book is, is that that title is changing on a regular basis. But Uh at this point in time, it's The Good Rain by Timothy Egan.
0: Perfect. Thank you for that. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners?
1: If you are interested in... uh, pursuing urban farming, remember that you want to do so responsibly. In other words, if you're going to get chickens, just don't expect them to run around your backyard. You've got to have a coop to put them away at Mm. night. Otherwise, they're going to be eaten by raccoons. And if you want to get into urban farming, don't be intimidated by it and take it with small steps. Mm -hmm. And I guess that speaks back to why I like the book, Your Farm in the City by Lisa Taylor, Mm -hmm. is it breaks down in five-year cycles, over five Five years. Five years, yeah. So, in other words, people come to Eugene, they buy a house, it's like, great, I'm going to rip out the backyard, and next year I'm going to have an urban farm. And then they become so intimidated and overwhelmed that they just aren't able to get any traction. Mm-hmm. So, start with some garden beds, find out what your soil is like, find out what your sun and your irrigation needs are like. And then, as you get more established there, obviously start your composting, increase your garden beds, then get your chickens, then add your fruit trees and your nut trees, ideally a beehive or some kind of a pollination system. So, give yourself plenty of time to become an expert. Don't become overwhelmed because then your urban farming experiment is just going to be a flash in the pan.
0: Yeah. I tell people pick one or two things, do that, get good at it, be successful, and then start adding.
1: And of course, don't be afraid to make mistakes.
0: That's a big one. That is a big one cuz we are going to do that, but that's where we learn at. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Bill. Thank for
1: having me. I had a wonderful time, Greg.
0: Absolutely. So how can our listeners get a hold of you?
1: We, of course, have a website, which is Mm eugenebackyardfarmer.com, all one word. If you Google us, we take up the first 10 or so pages of Google. So we've had a good amount of press coverage. Nice. And of course, on our website, that does link to our various social media outlets, which includes Facebook. Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest, so we're pretty easy to get a hold of. Perfect. Of course, if you need to send us an email, we're happy to hear from you as well. Info, I-N-F-O, at EugeneBackyardFarmer.com.
0: Perfect. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Eugene Backyard Farmer. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, podcasts, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. The Urban Farm Podcast is sponsored by HealthIQ.com. A decade and a half ago, I took on a very interesting personal goal, to run the Arizona Rock and Roll Half Marathon from the first running in 2004 until I was the only one that had run them all. They call us Legacy Runners. Since then, my times have slowed down a bit, but my commitment is stronger than ever. In fact, I just ran my 15th year in a row, and interestingly, there are less than 100 of us Legacy Runners left. Wouldn't it be cool if a life insurance agency rewarded me for that health-minded achievement? Well, I found one that will. Health IQ uses an exclusive qualifying process that helps health-conscious people like runners, cyclists, yogis, and vegetarians get lower rates on their life insurance. And if you have records like race results or those cool reports we get from the apps logging our efforts, Health IQ takes this into consideration to get you even more savings. Visit healthiq.com forward slash urban farm to support our show and see if you qualify. Just like saving money on your car insurance for being a good driver, Health IQ saves you money on your life insurance for living a health-conscious lifestyle.
1: We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams.
0: Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18 and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation and start your preserving adventures today. That's denalicanning.com forward slash free.